Hey there, and welcome to Living Through It, a podcast for interesting times. I'm your host, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, a recovering lawyer, world-renowned leadership expert, and lifelong progressive activist and organizer. Reminder that if you want to listen to this podcast ad-free, you can head on over to patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. You can get access to our entire back catalog ad-free there. And also we have some special bonuses for our most favored listeners. Thanks so much for being here. And now here's this week's episode. Hey, hey, everybody, and welcome back to Living Through It. This week, I am thrilled to welcome to the podcast Dr. Fabienne Doucet, who is an early education expert and the executive director of New York University's Metropolitan Center for Research on Equity and the Transformation of Schools. She's here to talk to us about for lack of a better way of putting it, the CRT panic that is underway in Florida and efforts to limit the education of our children to deny the truth of American history. This was a really dynamic and free-flowing conversation with a lot of great information for those of us who are parents who are fighting for our schools to create greater equity and tell the truth in the education of American history. I think you'll really enjoy it. Let's get to it. And welcome back. I'm so honored to welcome to Living Through It Today, Dr. Fabian Doucet. Fabian is the executive director of New York University's Metropolitan Center for Research on Equity and the Transformation of Schools, and also an associate professor of early childhood and urban education. And she is particularly focused right now on the limitations in education that are being forced upon students and families by folks like Ron DeSantis. So I want to welcome Fabienne to the podcast because this is so timely and uh, I'm, I can't wait for us to talk about how we're all going to handle this. So welcome. Thank you so much and thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Great. So, um, so let's just start with the recent bit of news because uh, last week we had some breaking news about what the Advanced Placement Board had decided to do. Arguably, at least it seems to be in response to Ron DeSantis's actions in relation to Black history and uh, the course, particularly relating to AP African American history. We've talked a little bit about this in advance, but, you know, I I have been very front and center about this whole quote unquote critical race theory stuff, because as someone who was trained as a lawyer, I actually took real (laughs) critical race theory in law school. And I find I watching all of this blow up where there's such a manipulation by far right wing figures of what Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw and others created has has felt very obscene Absolutely. to me on top of everything else from a theoretical and a pedagogical standpoint, right? Um, but I'm interested to hear what your immediate thoughts are on what happened with the AP board, because it is, it is part of a trajectory mm-hmm. uh, of eradication and, uh, and whitewashing of more uh, black history first and foremost, but also very much of the discipline of what really was critical race theory. So tell me what your thoughts are about that breaking news to start, because that's, uh, that's been front and center quite a bit over the last week. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I, you know, I share everybody's uh, shock, or at least many people's shock, when um, I heard the news about DeSantis, you know, even disallowing the curriculum even before it was officially announced, right? He was looking at a preliminary version of it. So from what I understand, there is still, it's still unclear exactly how the AP board has responded. There, there are still some sort of uh, differences in interpretation about their decision. But what I can say is that I think it's just absolutely ludicrous to object to students, high school students being taught real American history, being taught black American history, which is American history, and them having access to that information. It's bad enough that this is, you know, being presented as as a curriculum that would only be available for advanced placement students in the first place, right? Because I think it should be accessible to all students. But it's just it's just, you know, such a sign of of the overall, I think, fascist um, impulse that we're seeing coming from DeSantis, which is really frightening and that should scare us, honestly. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, one of the things that worries me about this so much is that, you know, this is a generational mm-hmm. impact, right? I mean, I have I have two elementary school kids. I am fortunate enough to live in a district that did a complete overhaul of um, their curriculum after the George Floyd murder uh, in response to that to really try to create a more truthful telling of American history, including about colonialism and the mission system in California and all these other things that had historically been whitewashed. And I feel very fortunate uh, to have teachers here who are very concerned about educational equity. What worries me, though, is that when you have elementary school kids who are being taught, for instance, that slavery wasn't that bad or that, um, you know, for instance, uh, you know, that that white Americans are not getting the perspective that white Americans benefit from systemic racism that began with the transatlantic slave trade in America and with colonialism, you're going to end up with a generation of kids who who don't understand the concepts that make white supremacy so dominant in America. And obviously that's the exactly. point, right? That's that's very clearly the thing that is unsaid, right? But I but I'm wondering, you know, from from the standpoint of how we fight this, which I think is the most um, pressing, urgent need from the parents that I know that I'm talking to who live in Florida. How do they go about doing that? Yeah, well, I actually, I have an answer about the parents, and then I want to say something about what I see that kids are doing. So about parents, I think we really need to start getting more progressive parents on school boards. Getting school board control has been a a strategy and a tactic of conservatives for quite some time. They go in through the schools. It's almost like grassroots, right? They get in at the bottom level at the schools and they sort of work their way up into higher positions, uh, higher elected positions. So, you know, I was really inspired when I read the news about this school district in Texas where five seats were overturned and, and they were taken by progressive parents, right? So I think like we need more of that. We need more progressive parents really sort of standing up and, and demanding that their voices be heard in schools as well. Because right now there's this sense that only what conservatives want for their children's education matters. And that's just not the case. What you and I want matter as well for our children. What other progressive parents want for their children matters. I have two kids as well. 
um, and minor in high school. And I was just going to say, you know, one of the things that, that heartens me a little bit is that one of the things that I think the conservatives haven't yet been able to control is social media and how much kids are literally learning from TikTok about Black history and how people are using these different. So it's sort of like, you, you know, where they try to, you know, plug one hole, another opening opens. And so it's just, I feel like they're, they're fighting a losing battle, but I just wanted to sort of mention that because I think I've been really impressed to see um, the work that young people are doing with each other. It's really, really fantastic. Yeah, it's funny. You know, my my stepmother was a first grade teacher for 35 years, and she and I were talking about all of this a couple of weeks ago. And she said to me, what the benefit of, of the far right doing what they're doing in relation to books and libraries and curriculum is that, and th- this was her perspective, the, like a library is going to stop our kids right now from finding out what they want to know about, right? I mean, that's the benefit of the era that we're living in is that, um, you know, whether it's LGBTQ history, whether it's Black history, whether it's, you know, the story of the mission system slave camps here in California, that people are finding, that kids are finding that information on their own. And that's that's really wonderful and good. I mean, I keep trying to say to my kids, um, the trajectory of this is bending in your direction. So right. let's like stay focused on the progress that we're making in this regard as well. Um, and I want to mention as well that you know, one of the things I think parents don't realize, and again, interested to hear your take on this also, is that a lot of these movements in school boards are astroturfed, um, meaning that they are not actually grassroots uprisings from the community. Some of the parents that I talked to seem to feel very overwhelmed Mm. as if their progressive views are not the dominant viewpoint where they live. And in fact, one of the things I think people need to be aware of is Moms for Liberty and how they're working. And maybe you could share a little bit about that because it is a conscious far-right movement effort that actually isn't grounded in the communities where it's happening. So, So tell us a little bit about that and how it's working strategically. Absolutely. I think I I love the term astroturfed, by the way. I think that's just such a brilliant way to describe this artificial way in which these movements are happening and being made, you know, they're sort of pretending that they're real. They look real. They're green. You know, like it looks like grass. It's not grass. It's not. It's absolutely not. And so I think that what, what I want parents to sort of be able to step back and understand. And again, I, I, as a parent, I also share the concerns and it is, it's very concerning. It's very scary, but I think it's important for, for us to sort of sober up and recognize that even though the battle is being fought in schools and over schools and over education, it's not about schools. It's not about children. It's not about education. It's about power and it's about domination. That's it. So they're, they're attacking and sort of going for the, the, the spot that we all have as a soft spot. It's our children. It's our schools. So they're going directly to that place, right? But we have to sort of look and look at the broader strategy. And the broader strategy isn't about Black children, white children. It's, not, it's really about wanting to push forward an agenda that prioritizes white, hetero, cis, you know, upper class, not even middle class, right? Upper class, like the absolute elite 
and the people in the in society who have the most power and who have always had traditionally had the most power it's about hanging on to that power this is a grasp do you know what I mean? I feel like it's sort of like, you know, in the mm-hmm. scary movies where the bad guy has to be killed like three times before it's, the bad guy's actually dead. It's like that last, right, kind of like reaching for one more breath. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, my God, I thought this was gone. And then it comes back. I feel like that's the, this is how we're, we're having to fight. We think we have it sort of beat down for a little bit and then suddenly it rears its head and we have to sort of push it back. What, I absolutely agree with you. And there's one other thing I just want to mention to this also, which is that it's certain school districts are actually being targeted for this. And one of the things that I have pointed out, because I'm originally from Bucks County, Pennsylvania, wow. which is one of the places that has been it's traditionally a purple district. Lots of progressives li- live there because in between New York and Philadelphia. But simultaneously, the Central Bucks School District has recently been completely taken over by far right wing mm-hmm. forces. And a lot of the progressive parents who live there, it's a huge gay community, um, are outraged by the fact that this is happening and simultaneously don't realize that the district ex- itself was targeted for very right. specific reasons, which, have, which are political right. reasons, right? Um, and I, I have also had to say as a white mom to some of my white friends <laughs> – Please understand that, you know, you are being, they're trying to engender fear in right. white mothers about their children hating themselves. And so it's a very specific targeted effort. This is not, you know, like a kind of generalized movement against telling the truth of history. It's a specific targeted effort in specific communities to make a political impact that, you know, mirrors, and I hate this term, but mirrors the kind of like culture mm-hmm. war issues that we have seen uh, around other things. And, you know, for me, particularly as a parent of an LGBTQ plus kid, the, the line, the line between the sort of like weaponization of, um, of, of white fear in conjunction Mm -hmm. with anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ sentiment, it's all the same Mm -hmm. story. And so I think it's really important for parents to understand that as well. That's right. That's right. It's re- it's all part of a narrative and they seem like different issues but they are absolutely interconnected. Yeah, yeah. 100%. You know, one of the things that I want to just um think through here is also about some of the things that we're starting to see. You mentioned the kids learning things on TikTok and the like. In recent days, we've also seen some some strategic reporting, not as much as I would like, but some strategic reporting around educator resistance. And so uh, Mm. one of the things, there have been a couple of pieces about uh, teachers hiding books, students hiding books, um, teachers Mm -hmm. kind of like refusing to comply fundamentally with some of the new regulations that DeSantis is putting out in Florida. Um, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that because I said this morning to, uh, to some followers and audience members that to me, um, I want to see more of that. And what I meant by that is more reporting on that because I'm sure that educators yeah. are doing it. But from your perspective as an educator, you know, the notions of becoming ungovernable I seem to apply here. But also, it's, right. there's a fear point there as well, right? Because our public school educators are not well paid. We've already seen DeSantis right. being willing to remove people. So what are your thoughts on how educators can strategize around this and, and the risk taking around that? Well, I, I just want to lift up 
the work that some amazing organizations of educators have been doing for quite some time. There's um, the New York Core, uh, New York Coalition of Radical Educators, NICOR, that has been active for probably 20 years, pushing back, you know, against these things and giving each other community and solidarity. There's also the bad, uh, the Badass Teachers Association. They're very active on Twitter, and they are national. There are national sort of local chapters of badass teachers who identify that way and who are very defiant and very willing to put themselves out there. I also think that it's okay for some of the teachers who like to be a little more quiet in their resistance and to simply do things without telling people exactly what they're doing. So I think both tactics are, are fine and are, it's whatever you know the person feels comfortable with. But teachers, I think, have always resisted, right, historically, think our educators are just the most magnificent human beings and not just because I'm in a teacher ed program <laughs> and I, and I, and yeah. I, you know, teach them from semester to semester. I adore them. But also, you know, from my own experience as a child growing up in Haiti in a, in a country under a dictatorship during the time that I was a child and having teachers who were not afraid to speak the truth, who were not afraid to teach history as it really is going to, um, school in the U.S. I when I came to the U.S. I went to a, a public um, middle school, but in high school, my mom put me in a in a private Christian school. She was really concerned about you know sort of like all the worldly influences of public school. <laughs> and even though most of my teachers at that school were conservative and had very conservative views, there were also teachers who were willing to tell us the truth and who are willing to engage in conversations that were uncomfortable and difficult. And I think, you know, we just have to continue to, to really uh, praise those teachers and support them and encourage them to, you know, hang in there and fight the good fight because they definitely are not alone. Yeah, I, I, I could not agree more. I mean, I'm, I'm really lucky this year because one of my kids' fifth grade teachers is like the equity consultant for the school in conjunction with the school district. And the things that she has been willing to do and to talk about and to challenge are just um, amazing. Like the bravery of it is really something to behold. So I just want to shout out every teacher who's fighting absolutely. a good fight on that front as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we talked about the need for more progressive parents to get involved. And I've been calling on people, if you're going to run for anything right now, please run for school board because we desperately need more progressive parents in getting involved in that. But I also want to hear your thoughts just on progressive parents getting involved in things like PTAs, um, because mm -hmm. I know that here, for instance, um, there's been, and I do some advocacy on behalf of LGBTQ students in our school district, but there's been uh, some real kind of like change takes time messaging, or you should be patient in trying to, you know, shift curriculum or shift associated programming. And my response to that has been, but the tidal wave is here, <laughs> and if we I, don't set standards right now and comply, by the way, with like in California, at least we have non-discrimination laws, comply with California law here about program accessibility and curriculum and all that other sort of stuff, we're next, right? The threat is real. So what is your advice for parents who are wanting to maybe can't run for school board, um, but are simultaneously really worried about the impact of this to their kids and the growing threat to it nationwide, because it's not just Florida. We all know DeSantis is doing all of this because he's going to run for president and he's testing it everywhere. Right. Right. Absolutely. 
First of all, PTAs can be really great uh, vehicles. We know that they can be very powerful, very powerful with fundraising, um, you know, very powerful socializing agents actually for schools. So one of my areas of research is family school relationships and parent involvement and the traditional framings of parent involvement as belonging to women, primarily being a white women, and how it is that, you know, when other parents get involved, uh, you know, the way that those are interpreted and framed. And sometimes, you know, a lot of times, I should say, um, parents of color, parents who are LGBTQI, parents who are typically, you know, in those marginalized groups tend not to be invited to PTA or to feel to feel not included, right? I shouldn't say, because technically the PTA is for everyone. Technically, everybody is on the PTA, right, um, as a default, but people feel excluded. And so I think, you know, kind of pushing past that um, sense of exclusion and, and really taking ownership and recognizing that, no, this actually does belong to you and you have every right, just like everybody else, to come in and have your voice be heard and, you know, form a, a coalition of people that you feel safe with and go at it together. I, I just think it's, it's you know, it's, it's time for us to really push past um, that fear and that sense of kind of powerlessness, I think, that is very easy very easily takes over and to recognize that we actually, you know, we actually have more power than we think we do. We think that we've already lost when we haven't. Yes. I mean, I have a great story on this front where uh, a school district that is a, a, a sub-district to my district that is not mine, a, a particular school uh, in my district, um, where there were some progressive parents who were really worried about the direction that the PTA was going, and they actually organized themselves six months before the elections to run mm-hmm got themselves elected, and then within the scope of the PTA rules, which they had studied very carefully, managed to end gender binary divided programming for kids so that non-binary and trans kids would be included. Now, I've collaborated with these people, and it took them like a solid, I want to say like six months to a year of organizing to do it, but they did it in their own living rooms, and they did it purposefully because they wanted to make sure that their children, and you know, I also want to point out, this is a very multiracial, multigendered group of parents that did this. Like it was exactly what you're describing, where it was families that had historically been excluded and were like, we're done with this and we're going to do it all within the scope of the bylaws, but we're going yes. to organize to create change. I just want to, I share that story because I think it's really important for parents uh, in conjunction with what you just said to recognize that we are not powerless, that really... You can organize with your neighbors and your friends and to do it across identity and to do it across class demarcations and to make sure that there is equitable representation, at least on the PTA. And that, by the way, leads to a lot of influence with school administrators. Absolutely. I I love that story. I really love that story. And I think, you know, parents can also build coalitions with teachers. I think, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm working on a book about um, building authentic relationships with families, and it's a book for teachers, right? And particularly for working with families that come from, you know, a, a wide variety of backgrounds. And one of the ideas that I'm trying to really flesh out and articulate is how, what I would really love to see is for parents and teachers to have this relationship that when I was growing up in Haiti, we had the term makome as like my, you know, my um, comadre, my co-mother. Makome is like my co-mother. And I love that concept. And, and, you know, over the years, it's sort of taken 
a bit of a different meaning. And But I really want to take it back. I really want to get back to the idea that we can coalesce with other people. And teachers and parents can coalesce with each other. Parents can encourage and support teachers and back them up when they are trying to do those hard, brave things. They can say, you know, when, when administrators are like, but parents are going to be offended, they can say, I'm not offended, <laughs> right? Because sometimes that can really cripple administrators who feel like they don't want to raise any problems, but recognizing that they aren't just serving one constituency of parents. And so, you know, those of us who want those things for our children can also back up our teachers, our our kids' teachers in the work that they're trying to do. Yeah, it's so important. I mean, we all have to be kind of in this together, right? It's got to be a a multi-pronged, you know, unified effort to try to you know, tell the truth about history and, and this country. Um, so the basics, <laughs> the basics, right? To me, this is, I mean, I know that it's all white supremacy and misogyny and, you know, capitalism and colonialism doing its thing. But to me, it's just so shocking. It's like, why would you not want to know the truth of the, of the history of where you live? Right. I mean, it's just, it's stunning. Um, Right. Speaking of which, I want to ask you a personal question because you and I had sure. a chance to, to email back and forth a few times before we did this. You, know, you were born in Spain. You were raised in yeah. Haiti. You bring a really yeah. interesting lens to the American experience right now, not just from the perspective of education, but also through the lens of everything that has sort of bubbled up um, in the last few years to really you know, yet again, a very explicit moment in America of xenophobia and overt anti-Black racism and, you know, deportations. I I personally did a lot of work during um, the Trump administration on issues of immigration and the deportations to Haiti have not stopped, right? Like that's the other thing. At all. At all. Mm -hmm. So, you know, tell me, tell me how, from your perspective personally, and I, you know, again, I'm I'm very cautious to not, uh, understanding that this is your experience and the experience of Various folks across various identity groups is always unique and individual. But I I also am very interested in your viewpoint of where we are as a nation right now, right? How does it feel Mm -hmm. to you to be here given where you came from? And and what's the lens through which you're looking at this now, both as an educator, but also, you know, as a mom and as an immigrant? Mm -hmm. You know, I I see... I have the benefit now of almost being 50 years old. And so I have the benefit both of history and of um, having lived in these different contexts. And so I see what is happening in the U.S. as, at the moment, as um, very much part of what is happening globally, but also things that we've seen before. So in some ways, there is a bit of I don't want to say comfort, but a bit of, okay, we've seen this before, and that means that we know what the strategies are to counter it because we've done it before, right? We've overcome these things before. But having lived, grown up in a dictatorship, I can absolutely see those bright red flags coming up in the U.S. around people being afraid to say things, people being afraid to, you know, speak their mind, people being afraid to being accused of being accused of being a communist because they dare to say that people who are poor deserve humanity and deserve a place to sleep at night. I mean, you know, it's like all these things, but like growing up, those were very real things that people got killed over 
and were, you know, silenced and disappeared and attacked for. So there's a, there's a, familiarity about it to me. And looking back over the history of Western nations with non-Western nations, there's this sort of like, we, you know, again, we've seen this before. So even though at the moment I can go through my, my periods of feeling really angry and feeling discouraged sometimes and feeling just so frustrated and being like, you know, everybody else going like, so what would it take for me to move to Finland right now? You know, like, I don't think I want to hang on around here anymore. Right? I have those moments just like everybody else. And at the same time, I, I also know that this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. We have to fight so hard for it and we're all going to get tired and that's why we need each other because when I need to sit in the corner and take a breath and have a drink of water you're going to step into the ring and then you're going to need to go take a break and then I'm going to step back into right we need each other for that but we just have to know that we've been here before we'll get past it we'll get through it the we we are continuing to see progress things like you said to your kids things actually are moving in their direction it doesn't feel that way all the time. It doesn't feel that way day to day, moment to moment. But when we step back and look at the bigger picture, that is what is happening. And we have to just remind ourselves of that and let that kind of fuel us and propel us forward. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. And I, I, I do, I really appreciate because I've been hearing from so many activists and organizers in our audience about the degree of their burnout right now. I really appreciate oh, yes. that idea of you know, we all need to take a pause at certain moments and, you know, recharge ourselves and take care of ourselves also. Um, and, and the historical Absolutely. context is so important. You know, I talked to Roger Lau from the DNC a couple of weeks ago on the podcast and also to Anat Shankar Osorio, who's mm. a big messaging expert. And both of them shared the same idea that this is, this is a particular pattern in history that we're living through. And, and there is good news about that, which is that we do know... Right at least some of the strategies that can be used to fight it. And this is part of a playbook. And it's important that we engage in the pushback that we know works, right? Which isn't meme culture on Twitter, just to be clear about it. Um, it's, it's, you know, multiracial, right. multigendered, cross-movement organizing to create right. a foundational conversation about progressive values and then to draw people to that. But I, I do want to just mention as well that you know, the dangers are very real. And one of the things that I think through all the time as a white parent raising white children is the importance of stepping into uh, anti-racism in, as, a, as, a, as a principal guiding force <laughs> of what I do when I'm out in the world with my kids. And so, you know, right. one, of the, one of the last things I just wanted to ask you about from the perspective of that, and, you know, we've talked a lot on this broadcast about the importance of raising anti-racist kids and Ibram Kendi's work and the work of so many other great academics and thought leaders uh, about how we can work to raise anti-racist kids. But from your perspective, and especially in light of, you know, what we're battling here, what are, what's your best advice for all of us? Because, you know, I, I also know, you know, my, my friends who are, who are raising black children have to have talks with their kids that are not exactly the same talks that I have with mine, although I'm endeavoring to do all of that. You know, what, what's your best advice um, for us to empower our children to push back on this? Because we've got to do that work in our own homes, especially if it's not being done in our schools. 
Absolutely. I'm raising mixed race kids. And the best advice that I have for all parents is to talk to your kids. Talk to your kids early, often, and continuously. My kids have been hearing the same. It's actually, this is a really cute story. So yesterday, my son and I were coming home together after an event and we were taking the subway and somebody had sent me a message on uh, Twitter, a private message asking me if it would be okay for them to use a video clip of me talking about children's literature and how children's literature is a fantastic vehicle for addressing difficult topics when talking to young children. You know, I'm an early childhood person. And so um, the video was playing and I was, and, and he was like, what is that? And, and I was like, oh, this thing. And this person just wanted to ask if they could use this clip. And he, he was hearing, he goes, oh, this is all stuff I know. He said, this is all the <laughs> stuff I've been hearing my whole life. And I was like, that's exactly right. <laughs> that we need to have these conversations that it's, you know, children are capable of understanding far more than we think they can, than they're given credit for. Children are, are far more resilient than we think they are. I actually also love a story I recently read on Twitter. A mom, a white mom was talking about how her child um, was talking about having heard something about white people in history and and saying like that she didn't like being white or something along those lines of like sort of like you know why are white people doing these bad things and the mom did this wonderful pivot of saying you know it's true there are some white people who did that but did you know that there were white people who also stood alongside people and fought did you know that there were white people who were involved in uh, you know abolishing slavery who were involved in the civil rights movement and and the daughter was sort of like wow well that's the kind of white person I want to be and like that's the message to white kids right that's the me- all of our children have a different role to play. And all of us can be on the right side of history. All of us can be on the side of fighting for what's right, fighting for truth, you know, um, fighting for one another, you know, standing up for one another, as opposed to sort of like, you know, um, trying to pit people against one another. Because of course, that's another strategy yes. of, of, you know, fascism is, is trying to pit groups against one another as opposed to coalition building. So we have to refuse that. We just have to have a stance of refusal against all of that and say, you know, nice try, <laughs> but no, right. we, we right. know the deal. Yeah, exactly. It's, it, you know, it, it, it reminds me, I, I was writing something last week and uh, somebody had asked me my perspective on something related to leadership and some other work that I do in relation to this and, you know, what my perspectives were on anti-racism work in corporate. And I said, I'm just going to be really honest. Like my perspective is the famous Fannie Lou Hamer quote of, you know, none of us are free until all of us are free. And my view is that my own personal obligation as a member of the human race is to work for the freedom of all of us and to not quit until we get there. Um, I don't know how well that was received, but that's definitely the model I use (laughs) in my parenting as well. Um, Okay. I have to ask you the three questions we ask all of our guests. Um, The first is what keeps you going? Yes. um, I love this question. So I honestly, even though things are pretty bad out there, like I said, you know, sometimes it's sort of like, let somebody get me out of here. Some of the things that keep me going are my kids. Um, because of just how amazing it is to watch them growing up into themselves and being their own, you know, people. And, um, and they give me hope because they are hopeful that, you know, they are thinking about their futures and that gives me hope for fighting for their futures. The other thing is dance. 
Uh, I've been a dancer my whole life. And after after sort of like a, a long break from taking dance, I've returned to dance. I'm currently doing salsa and uh, taking classes at this amazing studio that I love. And that really just kind of keeps me, um, I think it's, it's like a, it's a kind of self-care that people don't, wouldn't necessarily associate with self-care, but it really feeds my soul. And I think that part of it is because when I'm dancing, that's what I'm thinking about. So there's something mindful about it and meditative about it, even though, you know, it doesn't seem necessarily like it would be the case, but it really allows me to just kind of focus and stay inside my body to, you know, kind of just be here now. And I think that's really, really important. That's probably one of the reasons why it, it feeds me so well. And then another thing I'll say, which is, you know, probably going to make me sound like the corniest human being alive, and I might be, um, is really, it's love. Mm -hmm. Fierce love keeps me going. Seeing how people respond to one another in kindness um, when they don't have to, and community, and friendship, and just... The, the wonderful things in life that um, that bring us light. To me, that is summed up in love. And that's another, you know, kind of huge propeller for me. It's, I don't think it's cheesy at all. I, I agree. I agree with that entirely. <laughs> and, you know, I follow, I follow so many people who, who, who believe and not in the John Lennon sense, but in the ferocious, fierce love that's sense. Right. The fierce of, love. Fierce love, right. That that's the future that we all want to build. And that's how we get there is by living into it. Um, I also just have to say, I love the dance because it's a theme of the podcast, actually, that, you know, joy is the one thing that can't be taken or regulated. And the way in that's which it right. kind of comes up for us, it cannot be stolen from us. It's, it's one of the reasons why it drives fascists crazy when we're, when we're all happy together and experiencing joy that's right. because they can't be stolen. And so... It cannot. Um, you know, it's one of those things where I think we have to hold on to it with everything we've got, however we find it. And in the moments when it comes up that are unexpected, we have to claim it and feel it and let it flow through us because that's freedom, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. Question number two. What are your most pressing concerns about the state of America and the world right now? We've touched on some of this, but from the 30,000 right. foot view. <laughs> Right. What are your thoughts? Right. Um, I think one of the most pressing ones for me really is the attack on or, or the use of education sort of as a pawn. The, the strategic use of children, of schools, and of education as a pawn for the rights um, fascist um, you know, impulses and, or, or the, their, their fascist strategies, right? What, it is, what they're trying to do in, to, to really establish fascism um, in this country. So to me, that is extraordinarily pressing, and it's what I do every day you know, with my colleagues at the NYU Metro Center and through my, my academic work, but also my work as a, as a mom, as a parent. I, I completely agree. Um, all right, last question, which we've also touched on a little bit, um, is, you know, our audience is made up of activists and organizers, everyday people who are doing community work where they live. What are your thoughts on how our audience can best work to combat this? And we, again, we've touched on this a little bit, but if there's any kind of like overarching message that you would want to give to people who are, you know, facing this down in their communities, or maybe afraid that it's coming to their doorsteps, what's your best right. advice on how they can work to, to, 
to create safety, honestly, for education. Yeah. My, my best advice is, is to work together, is, you know, to build coalitions and to build those communities. You know, we talked about self-care a little bit, but another really important dimension of care is community care. So really being able to come together and recognize where, you know, where people are in need of each other, in need of that encouragement and booing is absolutely essential. So I think that's probably to me one of the most powerful things that we can do because isolation and and that separation and division is such a tool right of the right and of trying to keep people from feeling like they are um they that they're product, part of something bigger so i think that's our biggest weapon or at least one of our biggest weapons absolutely is is just community and coalition building <sighs> Yeah, I completely, I, I completely agree with that. And I will just, you know, say as well that I think all the mutual aid stuff that was done during the pandemic, we can't forget that we need mutual aid in an ongoing way. And we need it not just around right. who needs food, who needs medicine, who needs a COVID test. We, we need it psychologically. We need it emotionally. We need it spiritually. Absolutely. Yeah. This has Absolutely. been a fantastic conversation. I am I am so grateful. Thank you I, I, so much. We will have to have you back. Dr. Fabian Doucet, again, thank you so much for being here. Um, I will I would uh, love that. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And I will uh, I will link uh, to your information so people can follow you in our show notes. And also we'll make sure when your book comes out, I would love to have you back to talk about it more because it sounds like it's gonna be a critical piece of work for educators and families to work together. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. It's really, really been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. And we'll be right back. So I feel like this was an incredibly helpful episode of Living Through It, if I do say so myself, in the context of giving us the tools that we need as parents across identity groups and across movements and across issues to really work together for the betterment of our kids. This is a matter of generational shift, but it's also about community and how we can all work together to guarantee that our kids are getting access to the education they deserve and to make sure that we're combating the rise of fascist structures of power in the process. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you did as well. And for this week, I'd like to just offer you one takeaway. The nature of how we engage in our local communities is so key to this moment. And if you're not a parent or you're not currently engaged in figuring out what's happening with the school board and the education system where you live, take a few minutes this week and find out more. Because one of the things that is so key to this moment on this issue is that forewarned is forearmed. And we need to make sure that we are prepared for this particular astroturf form of power grabbing when and if it arrives at our front porch. So take that time this week, educate yourself, learn how to get involved, make sure that if you are a parent or a grandparent, you understand what's happening where you live. And even if you're not, that you're showing up for kids and that you're showing up for marginalized kids in particular to make sure that they are getting the support that they need and the education they deserve. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Living Through It with ECM, a podcast for interesting times. If you want to know more about me, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, head on over to GaiaLeadershipProject.com. 
where you can check out all our in-person and virtual leadership programs for folks who want to create change at work, at home, and in the world. You can also read my essays on politics, law, and change at newsletterwithecm.substack.com. And last, but definitely not least, you can listen to all our episodes of Living Through It ad-free over on Patreon at patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. Thanks for listening and see you next week.